mirror before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Four Friends, released December 11th, 1981. It was written by Steve Tesich, or Tesich? Tesich, I think. Directed by Arthur Penn and released by Filmways Pictures. That's right, we're three friends reviewing Four Friends. Julia Miles initially developed the story and teamed with Michael Tolan to form Tolan Miles Productions to produce the film for Lorimar. They brought on Steve Tesich, fresh off the success of Breaking Away, to adapt the story to a screenplay, but for whatever reason, Miles goes uncredited for story in the film. Arthur Penn was attached to produce and direct when Filmways acquired the project from Lorimar. The planned budget was three to five million, but it swelled to around 10 by the time it was finished. It closed its box office run with about three to five million, so right in line with the original budget, but it had ballooned far past that. I don't know where that money went. I don't either. Cars. <laughs> On the way to Four Friends, it had been announced as Georgia's Friends, and also simply Georgia, which, in addition to making the least sense as a title, seems to have confused some marketing teams who produced posters that included the flag and maps of the state of Georgia, mm. which is neither referenced nor appears in the film. Yeah, or Georgia on my mind would have been probably a good one too. But isn't that about a person? Isn't this movie about a person? Yeah, oh, you're, you're saying, saying Georgia as a title. As a yeah, title. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Danilo actor Craig Wasson was nominated for a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year, ultimately losing to Pia Zadora for Butterfly, which wouldn't hit American theaters until February of the following year, so we'll get to that performance next season. A large portion of the score is taken from a melody section of Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony, but Dvorak is not credited in the film either. We start at a train station in Gary, Indiana. A boy, Danilo, helps his mother lift a heavy chest off the train. They're met by the boy's father, Prozor, who is meeting his son for the first time. He moved here from Yugoslavia before the boy was born and sent for them years later when he'd established a home here. The overbearing and needlessly repetitive score starts here and lingers throughout, and it just sounds like instrumental from America the Beautiful over and over again. I just kept singing, Amber waves of green, mm -hmm. over and over and over again. In the car on the way home, the boy looks to his old enough to be a grandmother so we don't have to cast two people mother for permission to play his flute in the car. But dad has no reaction to the music. They pull up to a home in the Chicago suburbs and Danilo notices their neighbor is installing an antenna on his roof and that night he watches the neighbors watching You Bet Your Life through the windows. We cut right to Danilo getting chased by bullies up to the ironworks sometime later and they stop at the fence outside so Danilo can see his father working inside. Dad gives him a disapproving stare. I don't, were they bullies? Or were it seemed like they were chasing him and he was running ahead of them, but they're not fighting when they get to the fence. Yeah, together. yeah, yeah. Um, but also there was like a, uh, I sent you guys a video. This was, this was like all this like uh, sound effects, yeah. sound mixing. It was like, 
this is all Star Wars like lightsaber sound effects. That's crazy. I, I'm I'm wondering if it maybe doesn't work the other way around that like they recorded in Ironworks to use as Star mm. Wars stock because this seems like it was production audio to me. Yeah. We cut maybe 10 years forward to Danilo walking around with, I think, an oboe to communicate that nothing has changed in 10 years. He turns to watch TV through his neighbor's window and then notices his dad watching him from inside his own house with the same disapproving stare. He still hates music. Danilo walks to a railroad crossing and sees his friends David and Tom across the tracks playing their own instruments. The three of them dance down the street playing music together, and judging from the cars, we are now in the 50s and 60s. And judging from their faces, these high schoolers are in their 40s. They seem to be planning some kind of moving street performance where the audience follows them, and they decide they need to be able to play backward so they can face the audience. David can barely keep up backward, so his friends run and hide until he notices they're gone. Clarinet. Clarinet, okay. Uh, it looked like one or the other. Mm -hmm. It was definitely between those two. Well, they, they look very similar, but the, the oboe has like a narrow reed, and his had more like a, the recorder-shaped mm -hmm. reed. Oh, okay. Suddenly, we are hearing narration from a random old woman, Mrs. Zoldos, on a house on Aberdeen Lane who has watched these boys grow up. We learn from her that all three boys have crushes on a girl named Georgia who lives next door to her. This is one of the things that drove me nuts. The narrations. The the narrations jumping from character to character. And it's like, I don't Pointlessly. know who's talking. Yeah. And it's never helpful or useful. It kept me young trying to guess which one she would choose. She calls to the boys to mention a beautiful dress Georgia has made for the upcoming senior class concert. It's so lovely. She was dancing out at the porch earlier. The boys start playing in front of Georgia's house and she comes out with a big smile and gives them a spin in her new dress. She tucks a cigarette in her mouth and she quickly has three lighters to choose from. We cut to a rehearsal of the school's band performance and Georgia gets a little too into it and stands out of her chair to dance while she plays. The music professor, Mr. Lucas, calls her out after the song and she says she can't help herself. On the way home, she tells the boys that dancing is her passion and it has possessed her. She makes them all listen to her heart beating. Tom splits up with the group here to avoid booble contact because everyone else is pressing their ear to her breasts. She says she was born the exact day and hour that famous dancer Isadora Duncan died, making her birthday September 14th, 1927. This segment takes place in 1961, so she'd have to be 33, and when Danilo, or Danny as he's going by now, points it out, she says that Duncan's ghost took 15 years to find her. So when she said the day and the hour, she didn't right. mean the year. She left that out on purpose. Why Danny would have any idea when Isadora Duncan died is never explained. The other two guys don't even know who she is. They stop at a fence and admire a classic car in a lot, and suddenly Tom's on the other side of the fence climbing into it. I told you I'd see you around. Out of nowhere, David laments that he'll be getting glasses soon and considers it the end of his life. He thinks he's becoming his father, but Georgia drags the conversation back to Isadora and claims this classic car is the same kind the dancer was killed in. Again, Danny corrects her. Actually, it was a Bugatti. You and your facts. But despite a persistent rumor, it wasn't a Bugatti, but an Amilcar, which had wheels with open spokes. The dancer was killed in Nice, France, when one of her signature flowing scarves was caught in the spokes and she was torn from the car with her neck instantly broken. Oh my God, that's yeah. horrible. I, I feel like the writers of this movie read about Isadora Duncan and was like, I have to make this like... Yeah. Uh, I can't make a movie about her. 
So I'm just going to have everyone constantly talk about yep. her because I am so excited to talk about Isadora yeah. Duncan. Apparently the scarf was like a gift that she got right before she went on her trip. And the person who gave it to her was like, be careful with your scarf, like as they were driving away. No capes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Georgia is annoyed by Danny's obsession with data and shares a bit of his poetry to show their friends the other side of him. The four friends head home. Danny's father tells him now that high school is ending, it's time to get a full-time job and forget about his silly college dreams. As dad walks back to the factory, Danilo keeps playing his clarinet. I said clarinet the second time in my notes. Nice. We cut back to the friends. Sorry. I was going to say, you'll say recorder the next time. Yeah. <laughs> Flutophone. <laughs> we cut back to the friends wandering through a park at night. Georgia tells another story about her adventures with Isadora Duncan's ghost before collapsing into the grass and inviting all three boys to have a foursome in the park. I think I could ravage all three of you. I'm starved. Which comes a little out of nowhere from this character, especially as we'll learn later she is a virgin. She tackles Danny into the grass, and suddenly all four of them are tangled up, and one of George's breasts comes loose from her shirt. All the boys freeze in terror and look away. She slowly realizes they're not ready for what she's suggesting. Danny even leans in to pull her shirt closed, so she stands and walks away alone. Months later, in a snowy season, David pulls up, <clears throat> presumably winter. <laughs> There's not a lot of snow in winter. <laughs> unless we're in the southern hemisphere, I mean... <laughs> David pulls up in front of Danny's place with a new car that his dad bought him. He drives like a complete moron, sliding around corners on ice till they get to Georgia's house, blasting Georgia on my mind from the car stereo as she comes out to join them. She makes extravagant plans for their driving adventures today, but David seems too worried about his father's reaction to driving that much. Georgia announces to the boys that she will soon be losing her virginity, and they all freeze up and stare at each other as though she's just shared a cancer diagnosis. Maybe ask if she's already picked the lucky fella, dudes. I was scared of girls in high school, too, but if one of my friends announced this kind of a plan, I'd at least ask where I put my application in. <laughs> Sometime later, we see Danny in bed, and Georgia is out his window writing words in the frost. She points out the gorgeous moon and then offers Danny some of the aforementioned sex, but Danny doesn't just shoo her away, he insults her. No, no Georgia, no, we can't do this. We can't, not now, not like this. Oh, I know, I, we're not even... Uh... With you. And this is clearly an arrow to her heart. Danny, who has crushed on this girl for years, was offered the night with her, and he didn't just say no thanks, he said maybe if you were someone else. I feel like what his intent was, I mean, obviously he fumbled over his words here right. quite a bit. His intent was like, not with you, you're too special for that sort of situation. I don't understand that logic. But, 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 yeah. like, I think that, that that would be where his mind goes. And I waited the entire rest of the movie for him to explain this moment. He doesn't yeah. bother. And he never does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I took it as, uh, is like, 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 I don't want us to stop being friends. Yeah, and he doesn't, like, straighten it out immediately and he has, like, 15 seconds to do it. He's like, not with you. And then she's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's so painful for me. And she, like, leans back and, She's upset, and he, and he's just, like, looking at her, not yeah. saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Yeah, and then they spend the next 20 years never yeah. talking about this again. I felt like Christmas all the way here. I was bringing you a gift, and you don't want it. He seems upset when she leaves, and I feel like I'll continue to not understand this character's motivations for the rest of the film. It's one of those protagonists that we're supposed to identify with, but he never does a single thing we would do, and so I hate him the whole time. 
Because most of this movie is just a string of unrelated vignettes, we cut to the school gymnasium for Career Day 1961. Jack Belknap, a man representing the steel companies of America, like the one that employs Danny's father, takes the podium. He barely starts a speech about how the steel industry built the nation, which, to a certain extent, it kind of did, because railroads made western expansion possible and propagated the industrial revolution, but Danny stands to unleash a screed of nonsense in front of his classmates that, again, comes out of nowhere. That is not an exaggeration, it's a lie. America was not built. It drew out of a dream. This is a school. It's an institution of learning. It is not an employment agency. Georgia has to force a very wide smile to communicate that she agrees with this sentiment. Literally, schools were made to design people who could go work in yeah, factories. Yeah, that is what a school is. <laughs> Danny is quickly dragged away by faculty, and the students left behind are led by Georgia in a rendition of Hit the Road, Jack, until Jack Belknap stops talking and leaves the school. Now we get my second favorite moment of the film. We see Danny drinking milk with breakfast the next day, and one second into the scene, his dad backhands him across the room, knocking milk all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome. Well, and He and, knocks him fully out of his chair. Yeah, yeah. And not only does uh, Danny not help clean up the milk, or the father not help clean up the milk. <laughs> he just goes right to the fridge to refill it. Gets the new glass of milk and leaves his poor mom to clean up yeah. all this milk. Apparently, Danny's outburst at school reflected poorly on his father, who was employed by the freshly insulted local steel industry. But he waited. He right. waited for the opportune He'll moment. Never to expected. <laughs> now while Wait he's for drinking the first milk, sip, wham! He thinks he's better. He thinks he's better than I am. Danny drinks more milk, and Dad swats it out of his hand again. <laughs> so funny! I wish they just did this over and over until they ran out of milk. He's like, I got to go to the store, Mom. We're out of milk. <laughs> Clean up these cups while I'm gone. He goes to the fridge to pour a third glass of milk, and Dad just keeps smacking him in the head. Back at the school, we move down the main hall to show piles of shoes, and we see everybody dancing in the gym in their socks. No reason. <laughs> I don't know why this happened. It's a sock, it's a sock hop. hop, yeah. But there, there's not a scene that follows this. We just see that there's a dance happening, and then we cut to the beach. It's like, what was the point of that scene? Fair. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the party after the sock hop. I guess. I, I, can't, I, I can't tell. I assume that this is like a graduation thing. It must be. So we're at a beach party now, and the beach ball they're playing with has JFK and Jackie O on it. I can't imagine this was a thing that ever existed anywhere, except as historical foreshadowing and a prop. Lots of kids splash their beer on the only black boy in their class. Georgia wanders off with Danny's completely undefined friend, Tom, and Danny follows to spy on them. He finds them having sex on a small private beach and tickling each other with red feathers. Danny has the same concerned look as he watches them now as he's had for this entire movie, and it just annoys me. Hey, how dare someone accept the invitation I rejected? Georgia notices him watching, but doesn't stop, and Danny looks away for a second, but looks back when he thinks she's not watching him anymore. She still is. Hours later, back on the beach, all of Danny's classmates declare a race war on Rudy and his girlfriend Sharon, the only black kids in their class, who defend themselves with the metal skeleton of a destroyed umbrella. Eventually, the kids chase Rudy and his girlfriend Sharon down the beach, hurling flaming logs at them. The kids all drive home in awkward silence. We cut to Danny packing a huge wooden chest for college and bringing along a framed photo of Georgia. Mrs. Zoldos sees him walking outside Georgia's house later, and he asks her to tell Georgia he said goodbye. Danny's mom hugs him goodbye on their porch, and then he hops in a pickup to leave town. 
We cut to Danny's dorm room in college, and he's playing Georgia on my mind again, and his roommate is clearly sick of it. Apparently this is because Danny's had it on loop for two years, so we're now two years into college. Danny's roommate is a space nerd and talks about space shit. He suffers from some kind of disability that requires the use of dual canes to walk. He worries aloud that he won't live to see the moon landing, but Danny assures him he will. The friend, whose name has thus far gone unmentioned, much to my annoyance, asks Danny to promise to think of him when man first lands on the moon. We cut forward some time, and Danny is representing his school in a televised academic decathlon. He's asked for the last four lines of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43, and instead recites the same poem that he wrote himself that Georgia shared that night with their friends after high school. I love you like the pilgrim loves the Holy Land, like the wayfarer loves his wayward ways, like the immigrant that I am loves America and the blind man the memory of his sighted days. That is not correct. Georgia is watching on television with her family and mouths along with the poem, evidently still having it memorized. Mrs. Zoldos, the old woman who lived next door to Georgia, stipulated in her will that David would handle her funeral arrangements. He also apparently inherited the needless film narrating duty. Back in the dorm, Danny is throwing books all over the place because he's a weird asshole. His pointlessly anonymous roommate tries to improvise an erotic novel out loud because he thinks Danny is just horny. The wall above John Doe's bed is wallpapered in porn. I'm going crazy. <laughs> Danny boy, we need some snatch. <laughs> I need it. Help. Snatch. Snatch. <laughs> he falls into a coughing fit and Danny helps him back into his bed. The kid, whose name we'll learn way down the line is Louie, admits to Danny that he'll probably never have sex either. Sometime later, Louie's sister visits the campus, and she and Danny are quickly an item, a development Louie applauds. We cut to Danny and Louie driving to Georgia's wedding. Danny claims to hope Georgia is happy with her new husband, his friend Tom, who we still know nothing about beyond his name. He's barely well, said five words in the film. Except now that he has a military uniform. Right. So it's like, wedding. okay, well, I guess that's, that's the, what he is now. Yeah, that's your entire defining characteristic. Louie is already more of a friend than Tom, who I believe is one of the titular four friends. Yeah, that, that was going to be my question later. I was like, who are the four friends? Yeah, why, in this why is Tom one of the friends if he says nothing? Apparently, they arrive late to the wedding just as Georgia is coming down the church steps in Lydia Dietz's wedding dress. She's wearing a pocket watch like an eye patch over one eye because who the fuck cares? <laughs> this is so dumb. Louie congratulates Georgia and Tom, but Georgia explains his mistake. Apparently, Danny's invite didn't specify a groom because they're surprised to learn here that David is the groom because Tom wasn't interested or interesting. She announces that she is pregnant, and now Louie congratulates David and is mistaken again. Well, congratulations. It's Tom's baby. <sighs> I better shut up again. I, I thought the implication was that she had married both of them. Oh. And, and so... I was like, oh, okay. And and Danny is extra left out because he didn't. <laughs> He's the only, only one, one of the friends not, of not married. Yeah. I, I was just like, oh, that is so like, oh, that would just stick yeah. in my craw so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, and it does in Danny. Danny is like furious. Yeah. And that, But yeah, I guess she just married David. Right. Danny reminds everyone what an asshole he is by complaining that she accepted his rejection like an adult. I hate that the main character of this movie actually has main character syndrome. 
Danny believes that he's been treated unfairly, but can't quite put it into words because he's fucking wrong and dumb, and he flips out. You're gonna dance, huh? You're not gonna dance! You're not gonna do anything! You're gonna spend the rest of your life right here in East Chicago, Isadora Duncan! Danny, Tom, and Louie sing Georgia as they drive at night. Danny drops Tom off at a train station where he'll be shipped off to war. I'll be back. You can quote me on that. If Tom were played by a different actor in every shot of this film, I wouldn't notice. <laughs> He's just a man-shaped blur. Yep. And I was sure he would not be back. <laughs> we cut to the national anthem being played at a sporting event, but we never see the field, so I have no idea what's being played here. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Danny has a dumb fake beard, and Louis's sister throws her arm over his shoulders as he sings. I think this beard is the thing that I find most annoying about this entire <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah. Yep. But, but what I love about the beard is what it symbolizes, because it's the... His- his Amish nature? <laughs> no, it's the complete opposite of his father. His uh, father has a big bushy mustache and no beard, uh, and he grows a big bushy beard and no mustache. Great big bushy beard. <laughs> I was like, so if they kissed, oh, it that'd would be perfect, but they never will. But no. it's not a great big bushy beard. It's no. just a chin yeah. It'd be great patch. if his dad had mutton chops all the way down to like four inches apart on the bottom of his chin right where the goatee starts. <laughs> yeah. Now Louis is narrating, but none of these narrations has offered a single relevant or interesting comment. It's basically just, now I'm talking. Deal with yeah. it. Uh, I need to tell you that he really loves the national anthem. It'll that, play that, into that. a lot later. Get ready for it. In all the time I've known him, I've never heard him say United States once. It was always America. Like he saw something when he said it. I could not understand this narration less if I tried, and I actually tried to understand it less. I was like, nope, I'm at the bottom. I'm at the bottom of this. There's no way. He's never said United States. He always says America, and he said it like he sees it. What does that mean? I, I guess it's it's supposed to be because like he's 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 an immigrant, and like America is like this big ideal that he was. Wouldn't it mean the same thing if he said he never said America? He always said the United States, and he looked like he saw something when he said it. Yeah. It makes just yeah. as much sense no, I, the other I, way around. I, yeah, but I think like the whole thing was that he's supposed to be very nationalistic. But it's like the United States is nationalistic. Like I yeah. just don't get what the difference is between saying United States and saying America. The stadium celebrates a moment of silence for JFK, so I'm assuming this is still close to that, which is still only a couple years after their high school graduation. We cut to Georgia giving birth. She tells the doctors not to touch her, just to stand back and applaud as she shits this baby right out on the table. So... Okay, so I at this point in the movie, you guys had watched it, and I, I was the last one to watch it. So I knew there was a moment in this movie worth, like... Reflection? Stopping and freaking out. Yeah, to be <laughs> surprised at. So ev- at, at every turn, and I think I enjoyed the movie more, so at every turn I'm trying <laughs> to anticipate what the hell is going to happen. Obviously, She's going to have Rudy's baby right I here. I didn't anticipate it. Right. But I'm just like, are we just going to get a full-on like birth yeah. shot right now or something? There's no way you could possibly have expected <laughs> what is still coming down the pipe. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whew. Okay, calm down. <laughs> David is instructed to start music and film the birth, and we cut to Louis, his sister Adrian, and Danny arriving to Louis's family mansion. Later, on a gravelly beach, Danny confesses to Louis that he and Adrian have discussed marriage, and Louis suggests doing it in secret, if at all. Good advice, it turns out, but it was ignored. Uh, also, all along this beach, there's construction vehicles. Right, there's tractors and shit. Because uh, uh, Louis's father 
is losing the beach to erosion. Yeah. So he keeps having more dirt brought in and yeah. piled up in order to keep the so beach. So the island doesn't wash away. Over dinner, Adrian's father keeps calling Danny a coward for sitting out the war and claims philosophy is code for chicken shit. If somebody attacked you, if I attacked you, would you fight back? It seems to me as if you're attacking me right now. Yeah. And it seems to me you're not fighting back. It's a cruel world, dear. Nobody wants to fight you. Danny follows up the exchange by announcing his intention to marry Adrian, and Mother is at least amused. Oh, it appears I spoke too soon. Father says he has no intention of giving his daughter to anyone. That night, Father knocks discreetly at Adrian's door, and she lets him in, seeming to imply a history of incestual abuse, unless I'm misreading the moment. Back at Danny's childhood home, his father is saddened to hear that his son's life will be better than his. He had hoped that Danny could suffer his whole life in a steel mill. Danny is for some reason asking his own father's permission to marry someone? Yeah. Is this a thing? I've never heard of this tradition. No, I think it's just that... They wanted like, them to have another argument. Yeah, it's like, no, nothing I ever do is good enough for you, Dad. Yeah, like, I feel like I would just not bother with this guy. Obviously, he's not going to approve because he doesn't approve of anything you do. Even if he and his father didn't hate each other, it's a weird conversation to have. As it stands, it's just an invitation for Dad to say more hurtful shit. Dad won't give his blessing, but agrees to attend the wedding, even though Danny's fake goatee now looks like he's on Rum Springa. <laughs> <laughs> the next snowy season, uh, winter, I believe, Danny walks with David and Tom's baby through snow. David got a letter from Tom, apparently written entirely in Vietnamese. Danny learns here that Georgia left him, but she just disappears for long stretches and comes back eventually. Why would you send somebody in America... A letter in a language they didn't understand? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's, it's interesting like to show, oh, look, this is how much of the culture that I've learned. And I, I do think that that's fascinating, but you at least give like, a translation. It, yeah, the, the same thing on both sides of the paper in two languages. The baby boy is named Isidore Duncan Levine. Turns out when she disappeared this time, Georgia headed to Danny's dorm and finds Louie there alone with a thermometer in his mouth. You went to East Chicago. <laughs> so we just missed each other. She checks the thermometer and says that Louie has a fever, but he says he's freezing, so she removes her coat to wrap him up. She finally notices all the porn and pretends they must be pictures of his family. Oh my, look at Aunt Louise. I don't know why he ever left home. She watches the boy for a moment and then offers to unwrap his present, by which she means strip for him. He thinks he's imagining this, and she's flattered. Danny remains the only boy in this film to foolishly turn down Georgia's offer. I, I do love the the hard cut of her like starting to undress to Louis being loaded into an yeah. ambulance. It's just like she fucked him to death. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> snoo snoo. Danny packs up the last of their dorm items and leaves town. On the freeway, he passes a busload of freedom riders protesting in the civil rights movement. He recognizes his high school friend Rudy on the bus and is invited to join them when the bus makes its next stop. He nearly follows them through an interchange, but chickens out and ditches the bus at the last second. Danny arrives at Louis' family's mansion again, and Adrian's father calls him simply the Yugoslav, even though he is about to marry into the family. That night, my theory is proven correct when Adrienne runs panting from her room and father follows her out half undressed. Danny sees this all happen, but Adrienne's dad pretends it's nothing. Big day tomorrow, Mr. Prozor. 
Danny stupidly picks the morning of his wedding to shave off his terrible goatee and slices a big gash in his cheek. He seems to flip out a little, reimagining the encounter he saw last night. We cut again right to the wedding letting out. A band starts playing and we see it's Tom, returned from the war, holding Isidore, David, and Georgia, who have all made it to the ceremony and presumably won't be dicks like he was at their wedding. Later, a lavish reception is in full swing on the lakeside courtyard behind the mansion. Yeah, uh, I was listening to the music of the reception. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, what is this song? I know this song. And it took me a minute, but I figured out what it was. Um, it's the theme to the movie The Third Man. Oh, interesting. And, and you know, which traditionally, like, I think you, you hear it played on a, with a zithar, like, you know, like, a, or a dulcimer. I can't remember which instrument yeah. it is. Um, but here you're hearing a whole band play it. Uh, which was like, so it's kind of weird, but, but I looked it up on the soundtrack listing and it literally just says the theme to the third man. Oh, like, really? Yeah, well, there it is. There you go. Dad-in-law watches the event from a window upstairs and Danny's father simply nods at the man. Dad-in-law finally comes down the steps and motions for the band to pause the music so he can say a toast. To my daughter, Adrienne Carnahan. Yay! I'm not losing a daughter. No, I'm not losing a daughter. In effect, what I'm saying is that I refuse to lose a daughter. Then he whips out a fucking gun and shoots his daughter in the heart. What the fuck? She collapses and Danny lunges toward the man as he fires a second shot and hits Danny in the head and he clatters to the ground. He just killed them. Yeah. And he then, just shot them in the middle of the wedding. And then he turns the gun on himself. Yep. Right into the back of the mouth, pointed up, blam. And we fade to white on Georgia's screaming. I was so happy with this ending. <laughs> I thought this was the end of the movie. I thought it was a 67-minute movie. And they and the whole time they've been building to, we know you hate Danny. We know you hate Danny. Don't worry. We're going to take care of it. Yeah. My, my, my mouth hurt. Because my my face was so contorted <laughs> in in just total like I couldn't even believe what what yeah. I was seeing because it just made no sense to occur in. This I movie. told Jess that I felt like I was lucid watching the movie. Like suddenly I took over and made things happen. And I was like, <laughs> the second time he said no, I'm not losing a daughter. I was like, just fucking kill her. Just fucking pull out a gun and shoot her. And he does it. He shoots her in the heart and then he shoots Danny in the head. It was good shots, too. Yeah. I think he was just trying to kill Danny, and he accidentally hit his daughter first. I don't know. I maybe don't know. maybe he's I, a... I think he was trying to kill her. Yeah. I think he was, too. Maybe. Maybe he was cleaning up his whole mess. I feel like I've always said that I wanted this, where I wanted a movie to just be, like, one genre all the way through, and then just all of the sudden sort of, like, flip a switch and become something else that was really jarring and just, like, a totally different movie. Yeah. And this did that, and I loved it. And then it goes back to being The problem boring. is it went right back to being yeah. the yeah. same movie it yeah. was before. Yeah, I really wish it had ended here. I think it would have yeah. been amazing. You can't you can't have, like, this big The Departed moment and then have the movie keep going for another 40 minutes. Yeah, just slowly back out of it. Like, no, no, because I, 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 I texted you. I was like, I'm done. Yeah, this like, is the end of the movie. I don't, I don't care about anything else of this movie. Yeah. We slow down on Georgia's screaming face, and I'm livid the picture doesn't come to a stop here for the credits to roll. This would be in my top five for the year if it ended right now. <laughs> 68 minutes long. I wish this was the end of the movie. We dip to white. 
as is the custom before a character wakes up in a hospital. Danny sees his parents at the foot of his bed. He has survived the incident, but his wife is not. His head is all bandaged up and yeah. his eye is swollen shut on the right side. I, I thought he had lost his eye because later we'll see him yeah. with like a fogged up lens. Yeah, he's wearing a patch for like a, a year after yeah. the accident. We see Georgia trying and failing to get in to visit him. He spots her through a window in the door during a lap around the hospital, but asks his nurse to walk him back to his room. He's not ready to see her. Sometime later, he walks down the steps of St. Vincent's Hospital with his head still bandaged. He seems to walk the whole way to the scene of the crime to check on Louie, but the mansion is quiet now. He knocks on walls, but never says hello or is anybody yeah. home because he's just annoying by default. He just walks into their house and looks for people. Well, I mean, I guess te- I was trying to figure out what if any of this is his now. Because no, he is I don't think technically so. married. He they didn't married. sign the paperwork. You have to sign the paperwork. That usually happens like at the end of the reception. Yeah. And it was never consummated. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's why he shot her in the heart. Because mm. he was like, nope, you don't get this stuff. He starts calling for Louie, but finds only staff cleaning the home. Eventually, he finds Mrs. Carnahan and asks where Louie is, and she breaks the bad news. Louie died September 29th. I buried him yesterday. She tells him about the pile of wedding presents and condolences in the other room and how confused it all makes her. She asks him to sit so she can tell him more of her thoughts on what's happened and how she's just a woman now and not a mother or a wife, and it's all punctuated with a truly disturbing moan of pain. I don't know what to do with that word. So as far as like movies we've had where actors win Academy Awards for being in a movie for five yeah. seconds, this This is the strongest her, performance. Yeah. Like, yeah. Her whole discussion about is like I was a mother and a wife and now I'm not, none of those things. Yeah, now I'm it, just a woman. It, it it was very powerful. But it like shook me when she started oh, making this that sound. Scream? Yeah. Honestly, I was expecting like Louie to be coming back from the dead behind him because she just looked she like it was the sound of horror. Yeah. And this is Lois Smith, we should say, by the way, yeah. who we always love anytime mm-hmm. she shows up. She's consistently amazing in everything. Sometime later, Danny is a cab driver. He wears glasses with the right lens fogged over because presumably that eye was damaged when he was shot. Walking down the sidewalk, he finds Georgia dancing in the street under streams of water from an open fire hydrant. She brings him back to her place, and he confesses his love to her, and she basically tells him she's too busy for love right now, and she can't promise to ever be ready to love him. Danny admits he will not get past this obsession, but agrees to part ways just in time to catch a guy trying to steal his car. He rides on the windshield of his own vehicle for about a block before the carjacker gives up. Man, you want this car that bad? You can have it, man! Man, you're 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 really into possessions, you know that? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's a great it's a great moment because it reminded me of the the Simpsons where they're trying to do the recycling. Yeah. And uh, they don't get hardly any money. And Skinner's like, well, this won't even pay for the gas to get here. It's like, sounds like you're working for your car. You need to simplify, man. (laughs) That night, he drives his cab as young Vietnam protesters are burning their draft cards. One drags a huge burning American flag over Danny's windshield. He looks very affected by the image of the burning flag. He goes to apply for a job with the same ironworks where his dad worked and sports an even uglier fake beard. Which you definitely can't have in an ironworks. Yeah. He quickly has a new girlfriend named Vera who lives across the street from him. 
The two of them attend some kind of ethnic festival together, and we cut from Danny fluting and dancing in the park to Georgia at some bizarre psychedelic nightclub party. At the climax of the party, one of her heavily intoxicated friends climbs into a car inexplicably parked on the stage between a bunch of dancers, and to everyone's horror, she starts the vehicle. <laughs> they are powerless to stop her as she sets the car in reverse and backs full speed through a window and several stories down to her death by fireball in the alley below. So we did it again. I yeah. mean, to a lesser degree, but like, because yeah. we don't know yeah. this character Who is at this person? all. Yeah. Mm. But it's just weird. Like, it's weird to start layering these odd deaths on top of each other. I also think it's insane that they had a fully gassed up car right. five stories up in this building. Like, right, right. How I mean, did you do that? I mean, it could be one of those like lofts that have like a really huge elevator that I could don't know. like a freight. Maybe. Like it was originally like a warehouse, so it yeah. had a freight-style elevator that could lift a car. Maybe. We cut to Danny's bedroom the next morning, and he's shocked to find Georgia standing at the foot of his bed. It seems her friend's car explosion has shaken her from her fascination with that lifestyle. She's sobbing, and Danny invites her to hug him in bed. Sometime later, Vera is leaving to work as a nurse and sees Georgia watering Danny's yard. Georgia is so bored with Danny's life in the suburbs already that she's getting antsy and wants to go back to the city. She comes up with a few lame excuses for leaving, and one good one that I don't believe for a second. I left baby Isidore with some people and I'm worried and I have to get back. She never cared about that kid. <laughs> I was honestly hoping this movie would end with her going on a drive alone with a long scarf and wheels with spokes somewhere. <laughs> Georgia jumps in her car and drives away. A thankfully beardless Danny heads out to a cemetery and finds two women pulling weeds out of the grass. I think one is Vera, but we jump around in time so much that I can barely recognize these side characters. From yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely Vera. I I don't feel like they're pulling weeds. I think, and and maybe it's just because they're taking take after take. They're just pulling out grass. Yeah, it does yeah. seem weird. Like that. I, be, I think they're <laughs> supposed to be pulling out weeds. Are they? But they're definitely pulling out handfuls of grass. You're right. He tells Vera he's leaving town and they say their goodbyes. He pulls out all of one handful to help and then walks away. He takes one last look at the Pennsylvania iron foundries on his way out of town. He returns to East Chicago to grab a few beers with David and Tom and their middle school bully, Gurgly, keeps trying to pick a fight with them in the middle of a diner. You'll never guess what this bully grew up to be, by the way. <laughs> Get ready. Prepare yourselves. He's a cop. What are the chances? But when he's getting chased to the ironworks earlier, they're like, Gurgly, come on this way. So I think it is a bully mm. that's chasing him. Not even David is intimidated by Gurgly's words. I mean, all this time, we thought he was a dumbass. It turns out that he's a smartass. Congratulations. You know what you are. As revenge, Gurgly calls David a Jew boy and rips off his toupee. He asks who's sleeping with Georgia this month, and Tom has heard enough and stands to fight, but Danny takes his place. Danny precedes his fight with a cringy speech and then wraps his hand in David's toupee so he won't break his fingers. <laughs> he then kicks Gurgly in the dick and tries to walk away from it but gets socked in the side of the head. So he cracks Gurgly in the crotch with another kick and then gets thrown through one of the balsa wood booths of the restaurant, knocking food and other customers to the floor. Like it's a hard throw. Mm -hmm. They trade more blows, but after a hard sock in the gut, Danny leans forward and throws up all over <laughs> Gurgly. I'll show you, Gurgly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a power move. Yeah. It's like you're in the middle of a fight, you're losing. It's like, well, yeah. fine, I'm just going to vomit all over you and you have yeah. to live with that. And then he knocks him out after that. Later in the day, we see Danny napping on Tom's couch at home, still gripping David's hairpiece. He's being watched in his sleep by Tom's two presumably half-Vietnamese daughters. Insanely, 
Tom is outside hanging up laundry, and his wife is out mowing the lawn, while their two daughters are alone in the living room watching the fucking moon landing. Yeah. <laughs> no one's in here watching the fucking moon yeah. landing? Well, also, his wife is, like, like dressed very lovely and, like, wearing these beautiful bell bottoms. It's like, you're going to cut the lawn in that? You're just, it's nothing yeah. but grass stains at the bottom. Yeah. Why in God's name would they not be in here fascinated by this? Did anybody seriously not watch the moon landing? Well, this is like like the third moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely the first one. Danny keeps his promise to think of Louie at this time. We cut outside and see Tom handing off Isidore to Georgia, and Danny just awkwardly watches them from across the street with his default annoyed stare. He and Tom pass each other as Danny approaches her. He points out a gray streak in her hair. He tells her he starts teaching soon, but he won't say where for fear she'll show up and confuse him again, and they're quickly shouting once more. She tells Danny she doesn't love Tom or David. I wanted to love all three of you. But I can't. It's just you. Just you. Oh, Christ, it's you. You. Me. You. Ha! It's not funny. Whenever he wins her over like this, his first move is always to insult her and push her away, so he does that again by saying he wished he'd never met her. And then they cry and hug. We cut back to Danny's hometown, where his parents are boarding a ship to return to Yugoslavia. Dad asks what Danny even wants in life, and Danny just says he wants to see his dad smile. He claims he smiled when Danny was born, and smiles again now, remembering the moment. But I thought we said that he came to America before Danny was born. So he just smiled yeah. continents away, thinking well, about it. I, and what I thought this moment was, is like, it's like I've never even seen you smile. And it's like, it's like I smile. I smile the day you were born. Yeah. And then like, like that was a joke. Not like... Like he had made a funny, like it's like, I smiled the day you were born. And then I, but I, but admitting that I have not smiled since. Yeah. Um, cause then they're all like laughing yeah. at nothing. Um, also <laughs> what town is this where there's like they this. They get on a ship to Yugoslavia. <laughs> I don't know. Yugoslavia. East Chicago has a boat leaving Yugoslavia every day. It's the 4 p.m. Yugo boat, they call it. <laughs> every day. You get popcorn? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how boats work. <laughs> I, don't I don't know how boats work. I assume popcorn is involved. <laughs> what? We cut to a campfire on a beach and the four friends and their families roast marshmallows. When we see the fire, it's actually Danny's chest with all his belongings in it. But Georgia suspects he removed a couple things first. He admits the only thing he kept was his flute. <laughs> Is it a flute now? No, it's a recorder still. Okay. Still a flutophone. David has a new girlfriend. Danny sits with Georgia and Isidore, and Tom has his wife and two daughters. Just think. Someday we might look back at all this and, uh, and not remember a thing. love you all so much. David's girlfriend tears up at the show of emotion. She announces to the group that David told her he wants to have three kids. Two boys and a girl. And you know what he wants to name them. All right, all right. The friends all promise to stay in touch, and the camera floats away as credits roll over the blooming campfire. The end. Uh, Four friends. What... What was the message here? Because I feel like... It's not a message. It's a coming-of-age 
you know. But, but yeah, I guess because I I feel like it was really trying to denounce Something. Georgia's lifestyle, like like oh, see what happens when you live like a Jenny from Forrest Gump style lifestyle, yeah. like you get people killed. Yeah, this is your fault, Georgia. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, oh, you're right. I have to just be a normal person. But he's also jumping from job to job randomly yeah. all over the place. And and his whole thing about like, oh, you're 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 not fighting, you're using your words to fight, is like, no, now I'm actually gonna fight. Yeah. It's like, well that's against everything you've stood for. Right. And and Danny is also when he's at home, he's rebelling against his father and a traditional life, but then everywhere else, he's the normal guy doing the traditional thing. Right. So it's like, which character is he? Is he the Jenny or is he the forest? I can't see the forest for the trees. Does like does like his father love Tom because Tom went to war and hate David because David became a mortician? Like I don't know. It, it, like I don't understand how how like it's like it seems like if you don't have like a a blue collar job, you're nothing in his eyes. Right. Um, but I also felt like that look that he shares with the other father in law at the wedding was him going like I'm beneath you. You're right. I shouldn't even be looking at you. Or I thought I thought it was like it's like now's the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you better get down here and kill him quick before they sign that paperwork. <laughs> He's like, I-, I left a gun for you. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a ridiculous film. I would say it's still a thumbs down. I actually don't care for Craig Wasson's performance. Yeah, um, I th- I think that the Georgia girl is great, and yeah, I think both the the David friend is great too. Tom is complete milk toast, a waste of waste yeah. of space. He doesn't do anything, and Craig Wasson the whole time is just making a a confused like indigestion face it's not anything and and yeah like you said earlier is like he he keeps making all the decisions that no rational person yeah would make and i can't tell what he's thinking from scene to scene because i don't know his motivations i don't know what he wants i think he wants this girl he tells the girl to fuck off i think he wants this he walks away from it i don't Cause, know because the only the only time that we get any kind of indication of what he's thinking is from other people narrating what he's thinking yeah yeah i think that it's really telling that this has one of the most insane, you know, switches of, of of what's happening in a movie in the middle that I've literally ever seen. And it's still so annoying that I won't give it a thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, if it had ended right there, no question if this would be a thumbs up. Or, because it would just be, I, I can't wait to show this to someone, and they're going to think I'm an asshole for the first yeah, hour, yeah. and then that's going to happen, and they're going to be like, holy shit, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Thank you for showing me that. Or, or if Danny had died. Yeah. Like, yeah. honestly, like, Danny should have died. And and maybe that changes Georgia's outlook mm-hmm. on life. Yeah. It's the difference between telling someone the aristocrats joke and then telling them the aristocrats joke and then starting it over and only telling half of it. And then credits roll. And it's like, no, the punchline was in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you start over? Yeah. It's yeah. a mess. Yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around anything else that was happening. So thumbs down for this. Uh, what are we thinking? Letterboxed. Let's see. By the way, this is our 168th film for the season, which is how many movies we did last season. So, so we're, we're done. O- officially tying the length of the Damn previous it. season, but we're we have more done. movies to go because more movies come out every year. Okay. So I have it at 132 out of 168. Um, it is below Deadly Blessing and above The Pit. Interesting. Uh, I have it at 143, uh, which puts it below Roar, but above Hell Knight. 
I have it at 158, which is just under Happy Birthday to Me and just above the Bushido blade. I'd much rather watch the Bushido blade. <laughs> I'm sure you would. I just want to see the people get shot again. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> You, I, I laughed about it afterwards because it's just so absurd. Yeah. Like I don't know how to deal with these emotions, yeah. so I'm laughing because it's such a confusing. Yeah, it's moment. like someone changed the channel in the middle of the movie, and you're watching something else for a second. And I, I knew what I thought. I was like, I cannot fucking wait for the text from Richard <laughs> when he gets to this part of the movie, and it happened. <laughs> he was just like four friends! Exclamation mark! <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Our director here was Arthur Penn. He previously directed The Miracle Worker, Bonnie and Clyde, Little Big Man, and so far on the show Night Moves. He apparently has a director credit on a 1977 reissue of Godzilla for earlier film clips, but I couldn't figure out what that meant. Because of this film's box office failure, he took four years before returning to the director's chair for something called Target. The writer was Steve Tesich. He previously wrote another Four Friends film called Breaking Away, and so far on the show he reteamed with director Yates for Eyewitness, Later in the decade, he writes The World According to Garp and Eleni. The music here came from Elizabeth Swatos. I don't think I recognized anything else on her credits. The cinematographer here was Ghislaine Cloquet, or Cloquet, Ghislaine Cloquet. She just won an Oscar last season, shared with Jeffrey Unsworth, who was awarded posthumously for Polanski's Tess. She took over the role after he passed away, and this was her last cinematography credit. The editor here was Mark Laub, or Lob. This was his second editor credit after Honeysuckle Rose, and he comes back later with Hammett next season and later Stephen King adaptation Thinner. He also has sound department credits on The Taking of Pelham 123 and Network. The other editor credit goes to Barry Malkin, who previously cut Who is Harry Kellerman and Why Is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me, Cops and Robbers, and The Godfather 2, part 2, I should say. So far on the show, he's edited Windows and One Trick Pony, and he sticks with Coppola to edit Rumblefish, Cotton Club, Peggy Sue Got Married, Godfather Part 3, Jack, and The Rainmaker. He also cut Big, The Freshman, Honeymoon in Vegas, and It Could Happen to You. Craig Wasson played Danilo. We've seen him now as Mickey in Carney and Doug in Schizoid. Did you do it? <laughs> he was that guy. He's back right away in Ghost Story later this season, and later still, he's in Body Double, Tales from the Dark Side, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3. He's also Paul in 1991's Midnight Fear, which is also his only writing credit. Jodie Thielen played Georgia. This was her first feature film. She's Kate in The Wedding Singer, and more recently she was Linda in Laggies from the late great Lynn Shelton, and Maggie in three episodes of the Twin Peaks sequel series. Michael Huddleston played David. He's the motel owner in John Carpenter's Vampires, and as the name Huddleston might suggest, he is the son of David Huddleston, a.k.a. the Big Lebowski. Jim Metzler played Tom. He has small parts in 976 Evil, Children of the Corn 3, and L.A. Confidential. Zaid Farid played Rudy. He's one of the muggers in Continental Divide who likes Belushi's column and gives him all his stuff back. More recently, he's the tow truck driver in Role Models. David Graff played Gurgly. This was his first film. He's Tackleberry in the Police Academy movies. Yeah. Felix Schumann played Principal. We saw him last as Dr. Ives in The Fury and a customer in On the Right Track. He's also Dr. Fiedler in Damien, Omen 2. Reed Burney played Louie. He's Jim Stansel in The Ten. He's Todd in Adult World, but I recognize him most as Representative Don Blythe from House of Cards. Lois Smith played Mrs. Carnahan. We love Lois Smith on this show. She's appeared opposite James Dean in East of Eden. We've seen her so far in Five Easy Pieces, Foxes, and Resurrection. Later, she shows up in Midnight Run, Falling Down, 
She's Helen Hunt's Aunt Meg in Twister. She's Mrs. Glenn in The Nice Guys, Sister Sarah Jones in Lady Bird, and Ma Clampett in The French Dispatch. Did you mention True Blood? Oh, she's she's the grandma on True Blood? Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. James Leo Hurley, he played Mr. Carnahan. He wrote the novel that was adapted into Midnight Cowboy. Oh. The guy that played the father. The one that shot everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Mercedes Rule played Woman in Taxi. We saw her last as the policewoman in Central Park in The Warriors. She's also the mom in Big. She's Anne in The Fisher King. And she's the mom in Last Action Hero. Glenn Headley played Lola. This was her first film. She's Miss Debbie-like in Dr. Detroit, a hooker in The Purple Rose of Cairo, Janet Colgate in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Tess Trueheart in Dick Tracy, Mrs. Holland in Mr. Holland's Opus, Vivian in Bartleby, and recently she's been Adam Scott's mom on Parks and Rec, Bonnie in The Circle, and Diane Futterman in 13 episodes of Future Man. Yeah, she passed away a couple years ago, oh, yeah. uh, and it hit me really hard because I really love Glenn Headley. Yeah. Um, she's such an interesting character actress. Um uh, she she plays like just random stuff like she's in one scene of the X-Files movie oh really like she's a bartender I feel like she always reminded me of like Carol Kane um a little bit um she doesn't have the I think she as distinctive like yeah. yeah but she looks like her kind of but what was really upsetting was the movie The Circle because both her and Bill Paxton had passed away within that oh, year oh no, yeah and they played husband and wife in that movie oh right and it was super surreal to watch them on the screen when they yeah. had both passed away since then. Because you actually worked with the company that produced that one, right? Um, I uh, well, we I worked I worked with the company that produced the previous film from the same hologram from the king, right? Which was also Dave Eggers, right? So uh, they went on to make that company afterward. Yeah, without okay. us, but but we worked on hologram, and that that one had like Hermione and Finn from from Star Wars, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boyega and. Yeah. Had a lot of people in it, you know, Patton Oswalt, Tom Hanks, you know, yeah. Tom Hanks came back. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, it was just a super upsetting that I couldn't get over it watching the movie The Circle. Yeah. First of all, it's just a very strange movie in general. But seeing Bill Paxton and her playing husband and wife when they were both deceased at that time. Yeah. And I never saw Future Man, but um, I remember when I was doing my orientation for the Editor's Guild that the person next to me was like, I'm going to be the editor on this new show called Future Man. And I was like, I think I saw like some story about who was going to be cast in it, but I don't know much about it. Paul Greco played Car Thief. He was Sully, leader of the Orphans and the Warriors, the guy who was like, you're really into possessions, man. He's also the guy who was like... Yeah. We have like, to fight you now yeah, because... you got to take off all your uniforms if you're coming through our territory. Uh, he's also a zealot in Last Temptation of Christ, a schemer in Oscar, and Raul in The Cable Guy. Petrea Burchard... Burchard? Petrea Burchard played Lady Flagburner. She plays opening woman in Death Becomes Her, whatever that means. She does lots of voice work as a character named Ryoko in a bunch of Tenchi movies and shows. Natalia Nogalich played Vera. She's Mrs. Shirley in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and Joe Hoffa in Hoffa. Alice Elliott played David's wife. She doesn't have many acting credits I recognize, but she also wrote an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, specifically the tale of the bookish babysitter. Not Dead Man's Float, the only one we care about. Yeah. Robert Minkoff played Bit. This person clearly operates their own IMDb page because all of their 69 actor credits are named either Bit or Bit Uncredited. <laughs> Paul Swearingen played Teenager in Town. Uh, he's uncredited, but apparently uh, was also a swimmer in Blues Brothers. I don't know who a swimmer would be other than the people who jump off the bridge to avoid getting hit by the car. Uh, yeah, it's the only swimmer I could think of. Yeah. 
Um, but those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for four friends. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing pennies from heaven, which IMDB describes like so. During the Great Depression, a sheet music salesman seeks to escape his dreary life through popular music and a love affair with an innocent school teacher. We leave you now with the trailer for Pennies from Heaven. Every time it rains, it rains. From heaven. Once upon a time, America was singing the blues. From now, from the music of the past, comes the musical of the future, Pennies from Heaven, starring Steve Martin in a dazzlingly different role as Arthur Parker, the music salesman who believes in a world where the songs come true. No more money in the bank, no cute baby we can spank, so what's to do about it? Let's put what are you doing, Arthur? I was pretending. Bernadette Peters is the school teacher. Quiet. Who gives up everything to follow Arthur and his dream. Love's a precious thing that never fails you. Love isn't for anything that ails you. She put the real meaning into them songs. I always knew they told the truth. I don't even know who you are. I'm Arthur. Love you. By the way, Arthur, how's your wife? Jessica Harper is Arthur's wife. Make me happy, John. Really be nice, huh? Down here on the floor? Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, do it. Me, do it. Little birdies in the trees, do it. I love you. Yes, I do. I love you. What'd you say? And Academy Award winner Christopher Walken, as you've never seen him before. The great event of 1928. Pennies from Heaven. Daring. Provocative. Original. Unquestionably, a new step forward in movie musicals. Songs do. There must be some place where them songs are for real. It's all singing. It's all dancing. And it's all inside of Arthur Parker. A man who lives on both sides of the rainbow. Pennies from Heaven. A film by Herbert Ross.